Welcome to The Digital Patient, where we discuss the latest advancements in digital patient engagement and share stories from the front lines. I'm your host, Alan Sardana. With me, as always, is Seamless MD CEO, Dr. Joshua Liu. Today, we're joined by our very special guest, Edward Marks. Edward is CEO of Divergent, an advisory and solutions provider, and has extensive experience in digital healthcare as a former CIO at the Cleveland Clinic and Global Chief Digital Officer of Tech Mahindra Health and Life Sciences. He's a fellow of Chime and Hims and has received multiple awards, including Top Healthcare IT Executive and CIO of the Year. Edward is also the author of multiple best-selling books on healthcare innovation and transformation and is currently writing a book on the patient experience for Mayo Clinic. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Psychology and a Master of Science in Design, Merchandising, and Consumer Sciences from Colorado State University. Edward is also a member of the Team USA Triathlon and represents his country at championship events around the world. Edward, Ed, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate you having me. That just reminded me, I got to work. I didn't get my workout in this morning. I better, Uh-oh. I better go get up. <laughs> You're slacking, Ed. It is amazing to have you on the show. When I think of healthcare and patient-centered care, I honestly think of Edward Marks and You've had such an inspiring story of getting to where you are today. I think at 16, you were a janitor for the Peterson Air Force Base Medical Facility. And now today, you're, of course, helming the wheel as CEO of Divergent. I was wondering if you could take us back to when you were starting out. Like, what inspired you to get into healthcare? Yeah, of course. So it really did happen there at Peterson Air Force Base, which I did some research recently. I think now it's like space. It's part of the Space Command. So it's got a cooler name than it did when I was there. But yeah, I was 16 years old. I had a chance to be a janitor. And so it paid way better than any other type of jobs. And the hours were super flexible. You know, you could, the clinic shut down except for the ED after five. So anytime after 4.30 or five, show up, take about two, three hours. And as long as you're done by 7 a.m. the next morning. So super flexibility. And I was just like sweeping floors and mopping and, and listening on my, I had my Walkman on, of course, and, you know, jamming out to some Black Sabbath or something. But while I was in one of the rooms, I, I still remember, as I recall the story, I still remember the exact exam room. And I just felt like this sense that I was supposed to be in healthcare. And again, as a 16-year-old jamming to Black Sabbath, you know, I didn't really know what to make of it, but I just knew like, wow, I wanted to be in healthcare. A couple of years later, I graduated, have to get, I pay my way through school. I didn't do really well in high school, so I had no scholarships, but the Army offered me sort of this lifeline. And I uh, took some tests and the Army said, you can choose anything you want to be. And I looked at all the different opportunities with an army, you know, it could have been military police or could have been, you know, infantry or something, but there was this combat medic. And I was like, oh yeah, it has to be combat medic. Right. So, so I did that. And then I graduated, you know, I went to college, became an officer, but I still had that heart to work in healthcare. And I tried, tried at our local healthcare facility. I would always I'd get rejected because I either had too much education or not enough experience. Finally, there was opportunity to, for an interim role. It was like a two month interim role as an anesthesia tech. And so I applied and I just really talked about my combat medic experience, nothing else. And I got the job and it's like, whoa, wow. Yeah, for sure. Healthcare is it. And so I was all about healthcare from that point forward. I was like, anything I could do, I was going to stay in healthcare. That's so cool. Did you ever end up telling them about your education as well or? Yeah, I I did. I I did feel bad about it. I actually (laughs) feel a little remorseful telling you that, that story about that part of it. And I did tell them after I got the job and they liked me. I said, hey, look, I, I know you were just interested in the anesthesia part, someone who knew a little bit about healthcare, but I actually have some degrees as well. And that led, then they were like, oh, that's awesome. So when that interim role ended, they gave me a, a more permanent role. So I became the project manager for IT for the operating yeah. room. So they were separate from the IT department. Back then, back in the day, everyone had individual systems before enterprise systems were a thing. So that's how I got my chops at IT was sort of leading this ORs, like basic OR scheduling and cases and preference lists and supplies. It was quite educational. And then after that, they're like, man, you can get along with physicians. You should work in physician relations. And so that became my first salary job in healthcare. I remember it was, it was uh, got a call Saturday morning, Mary Hine offered me the job. And, you know, we already had one kid and one another kid. So we needed a decent income, you know, and I was like, she offered me a job. I just started crying. I was like, wow, this is finally after all these years of just like working at, you know, as a janitor, working in factories, uh, temporary jobs, finally my first salary job in healthcare. And, and, uh, yeah, it was real emotional for me. Wow. 
And it sounds like you've just been super like, curious and then you followed your curiosity and when doors open, you just went through them and just said yes to a lot of opportunity. Walk us through, how do you go from, I guess, you know, anesthesia tech and physician relations, IT project management, some point you're the CIO of a large health system. So like, what were the major milestones in, in yeah. getting there? Yeah, there, there are like three. So the first one is, so I was in physician relations. One of my jobs was to work with the physician practices and I would help them in all different types of things. And I also, I did seminars for them. And I, I just was the, I was the intermediary between, you know, administration strategy and the physician staff. And so one day the IT department asked for a meeting. And I remember I was meeting with the CIO and he said, look, we've got this great application. It basically allows clinicians to remote in back then it was with a modem remote into the system and see the electronic health record. So they could be at home, they could be at a party and they could dial in. I mean, that was revolutionary back in the day, but they only had 5% adoption because back in the day, IT departments, still some of them today, but back then for sure, didn't communicate real well. They were mostly techies and didn't have a sense of marketing or relationships. So they said, would you help get the word out? So I learned all about this system and it was very simple. And I got the word out, we got to 95% adoption. So now 95% of our medical staff had access to the EMR remotely. And again, this was mid nineties. So kind of revolutionary still back in the day. So then what happened next, we had kid number two, cause like I told you, we kind of needed a really good stable job or we want to take a risk on kid number two. Kid number two comes along and oh my gosh, it is though a nightmare scenario if there ever was one when you're delivering a kid. She didn't want to come out. They did forceps. They did, it was too late to do a C-section. Uh, forceps, pushing, all sorts of different manipulation, episiotomy, just different things. She would not come out. She was without life for seven minutes. Wow. And uh, they finally pulled her out and then they resuscitated her. And then they immediately took her away because she had all three life-threatening diseases. And so she was sort of stabilized, but they were like, there's going to be big problems. And there's these three other things to deal with. And what do you want to do? And here I am, 20-some-year-old, my wife, 20-some-year-old. My wife also has internal bleeding now, so she's hospitalized. And so they asked me, Ed, what do you want to do? Do you want to life flight your daughter to Denver Children's, which is an hour and a half away? They have better care, level one nursery, and neonatologists. But then you're separated, and your wife's hospitalized, and then work and life and all kinds of stuff. Or do you want to keep her here, but we don't have the same, we're level three, we don't have the same capabilities. And I was like, oh my gosh, what do you do? And then I suddenly realized, wait a second, there's a system that I've been helping the IT people with. Why can't we send someone, because back then you had to load software on, why can't we send one of our techs down to Denver Children's, put on that software, neonatologists could dial in to the system, literally dial in to the system, and then talk on the phone with our pediatrician taking care of the baby, and that's what we did. Yeah. And it turns out our daughter, she became, she healed of all three things, completely normal, except she had, uh, she had, uh, this phase of, uh, what's it called when the kid goes through, like as a teenager, what is it called? Uh, oh, goth. She became, <laughs> 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 turned out completely normal. Right. And then she graduated from college at age 18 and she served in healthcare for the last oh, wow. two years. Wow. And so that was the moment that then I knew is like, now it makes sense. What happened to me when I was 16 years old as a janitor, having that thought, and then all the other things I did and bringing together technology, strategy, you know, business, the clinical side, bam, my role in life from a work point of view was to help save lives. And so wow. I immediately, so that was the number one thing that happened. I immediately took the first job I could get somewhere else in Colorado as I became a director of IT. So that's what got me into IT. And then, you know, I'll just skip for the sake of time to the third thing that happened. So now I'm at University Hospitals in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm 33 years old only been in IT for about five years, but I had this kind of a, I, I got to go to HCA. So I went from this smaller health system in Colorado, went to HCA in Nashville, great experience till the FBI showed up, shut our, <laughs> shut our program down. But I still had a job, but it was like, it wasn't the job that I really wanted. So when I got recruited, it was a lateral move to Cleveland, but someone said, you know, Ed, you know, you work hard to be, be possibilities of, you know, doing more. So I got there. And uh, the CIO ended up getting fired. So maybe a, two years into it, the CIO gets fired and they start bringing in candidates that look like me today. So like they're in their fifties, they've been around a while. They're really well tenured, have a lot of experience. And I looked at them and I thought to myself, now I know this is going to sound a little bit arrogant, 
But I thought to myself, you know, other than experience, which is really important, I, I can do this job. I mean, I, I can do, I've got the passion, I've, I've got the desire, I've got the vision. I just have to have the right team and I, I can do this job. So I, so I was the person who, whenever these people came in for interviews, I would kind of coach them. Here's who you're going to meet this, some things about them, you know, pros and cons, you know, some angles you might want to take. And then I introduced them to it, like, you know, what we were doing, what our current plans were. And, and then I realized, like I said, you know, Hmm, I think I can do this. So I went to the CEO. So I literally did this. I knocked on the CEO's office. And uh, he, he said, Hey, he said, Hey, Hey, Ed, come on in. So I, I went in and he, Tom Zenti, he, he later became my mentor and he's a great guy. He's since he's just recently retired after many years at university hospitals, great leader. But one thing he did, at least back then was sort of, he used his height to his advantage. So he's like six and a half foot tall. And he just stared down at me. I wouldn't even get a chance to sit down. So he just greeted me at his office door and he's staring down at me, you know, about uh, almost a foot taller than I am. And, uh, and he goes, well, how can I help you? And I was like, Hey, you can stop your search for CIO. And he's like, what, what are you talking about? You know? And then he just st stared at me. And then I was like, I said, I want the job. I can do the job. And then he literally stared at me for a minute. And I was like, do not sweat. Don't break out. Don't flinch. Don't blink. And I didn't. And then he cracked a smile wow. and he said, anyone who has the blank, mm -hmm. ask me that I have to give him a shot. Wow. So he gave me six, he said, I'll give you six months. So the next day I showed up at his office and I had a new org chart. And, uh, and then he's like, where are you on this org chart? And I said, I'm the CIO. He goes, yeah, but if this doesn't work out, I said, I said, it's the Vikings, man. <laughs> it's like, I'm either going to get this job or die trying. I got the job. I, my six months obviously went well, had a great team. He was very supportive and uh, that's sort of how I got into it. But those were that. like two key milestones for me. One was that first transition into, wow, the power of technology to save <laughs> people's lives. And the second was just understanding your calling and, you know, taking some risk and, yeah. and asking for it. Did, did you ever, did you ever ask Tom, like what his thought process was in those 60 seconds when he decided I'll give you six months? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We did talk about it. He, the way he would tell a story is like, oh man, Ed comes up to me. He's wearing like a purple suit. And I did wear colorful shirts, you know, it wasn't a purple suit, but he'll always make fun of the way I dress. Cause that was one of the things that he helped me with in my professional development as a, my mentor was in how to dress as a professional. But anyways, uh, yeah, he just truly believed he wasn't super impressed with anyone he had seen so far. They were all copycats of the person that got fired. And so he's like, I'm new. He trusted the CFO a lot. And he thought if I have Ed report to the CFO, then I have more confidence. So that's what was going through his head. And so that's what I did. I ended up reporting to the CFO, which was actually awesome. Uh, became one of my best friends and it was, especially as a new CIO, it was an awesome, important relationship for me. And uh, yeah, that was what was going on in his mind, but I'm eternally grateful to Tom. We, we still chat every once in a while about that event. Um, so meaningful to me. You know, what's going to happen now, Ed, there's going to be a bunch of folks in IT who knock on the door of this, the CEO <laughs> yeah. of a hospital now asking for the, their CIO's job. They should, Joshua. I'm telling you, I've given this counsel a couple of times before and it's exactly what happened. And I wish I had the freedom. They didn't tell me I couldn't tell you, but I'd feel awkward if I told you without asking them first. But literally, there are some very high-performing CIOs today at very established brands you'd recognize. It's the exact same thing. There was like this one that came up to me. It was a female, and she's like, uh, Ed, you know, they're interviewing a bunch of people. I don't know what's going to happen to my job, you know, and all this stuff. I say, well, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean? Well, what's your job today? And she was already in a you know a pretty robust role, having reported to the CIO who had just left. And I said, why don't you do it? You know, you, you've got the tenure there. You're going to get some Yahoo from the outside. It's going to be a 50, 50 crapshoot. You, you're a known quantity. You know what to do. You know where you want to go. You've got this great future. She was really young. Like I was at university and they gave her the job and she's still wow. there today. So, so I think, yeah, people listening, you know, if, <laughs> if you know what your calling is, you just got to go for it. You got to, I, I talk about, uh, carrying your mantle of authority. Like, like if yeah. you're like, I was a young leader, both in the army and both as a CIO. And it was easy for me to like, uh, be super shy, be sort of, oh, I'm so almost like, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. But I am the CIO. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't have this experience. No, none of that. Thank if, if, if there's a call, you need to walk in your authority 
And so that's what I tell people. I still have to do it today. Like a CEO, I mean, this stuff's new. I know we're, you know, going all over the place here, but it's all new to me too. It's like, but I know I've got a great team. I've got vision. So I, I go with it with okay. gusto authority. And that's what people need to do. I think we'd all be better off. I love that. Shoot your shot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's so cool. Well, Ed, now today you've been on practically every side of the healthcare table. You've led CIO efforts at some of the most renowned health systems in the world. You've also been on the vendor side. You've also been on the consulting side and advisory side. You've also been a patient and a caregiver, like the story with your your second board. I'm really curious, how did your own personal experiences with the healthcare system as a patient impact some of the views that you shared today on the consumer journey and patient experience? Yeah. It's, it's had a meaningful impact because you think like most of our audience probably healthcare related and they, we all think we know patient experience because we work in healthcare and we see it every day and we're, our office might be in a hospital, but until I can tell you this from my experience and Chris Ross, who's co-authoring a book with me on this topic would tell you the same thing. You don't really know until you're in it in a deep way. So I had, yeah, a couple major life things happen to me, cancer, widow make or heart attack. And uh, so I learned what it was like to be a patient patient. And then for both of us, you know, at the time we were both CIOs of, you know, number one, number two organizations in the world, according to some, and, and our experience could have been better. So nothing negative against, you know, where we are or were, but it could have been better. And we thought if our experience was like that, imagine for the uninitiated, for those who don't have someone in healthcare that can help point them the way. And so we didn't want to write a book for healthcare. Because there's enough of talk already. It's a matter now for us to do it. We, this book is being written for the consumer. So those that don't have a friend or family member that works in healthcare that can kind of walk them through the journey. So this book, you know, is being written for that. But anyways, an, assi- put the book aside for a second. That That's what really happened is like, wow, it's it's completely different experience when you're in the deep end of it. And again, I'm not talking about going into the ED because you got to even a broken bone, which is serious enough. But I'm just, I'm like, when your life is on the line and then you go through it, you tend to think about it a lot differently. Sure. And I wanted to, you know, you're, you're the, the digital health gurus. I have to ask you some, some digital stuff. I saw you speak such amazing insights at the Chime Paul forum last fall in 2022. One of the things that you said that really spoke to me was, you know, right now we are in an environment where it's survival of the digitalist and if health systems don't take advantage of digital health to thrive and survive, you may be acquired or something else might happen. I, I'm curious, like, what do you think may happen to health systems who don't actually make the transition to an effective digital health strategy? Yeah, I think we're, you know, what I'm about to say, we're seeing already, and it's been happening for a couple of years, but I think it's going to accelerate. I think they're going to be disintermediated in, in a number of ways, in one of a number of ways. One is M&A, right? I think we're going to go towards larger systems. Smaller systems are having trouble with the capital investment needed sometimes to do things digital, or they just aren't thinking about digital until it's too late. So as you know, you don't have to invest a ton of money to be digital. You can invest your money smartly and be digital and still be all about the consumer and their experience. So that's the, and the other thing is all the disintermediation that's happening, right? With with payers, right? Like the the biggest organization of physicians now is a payer. It's not a health system or a hospital. It's payers have more primary care docs than anyone else. And they're they're moving up the chain. They're getting very cozy, buying a couple of hospitals here and there. So you got the payers, you've got big tech, major tech, whatever you want to call it. Amazon, you know, some already are seeing the button appear on their Amazon page, you know, for a visit. Uh, and certainly pharmaceuticals and, and the way drugs are delivered things like that, retail. So a lot of different things are, are happening that will cause a lot of pressure and ready are on health systems that are traditional. So if they don't do something to compete against that, then they're going to lose out, right? Because us as consumers, it's like, we want convenience. We want whatever's easy. And so if I know that I could see a clinician at 7 p.m., you know, down the street at a retail location, whereas my PCP shuts his door at 5 well, guess what? I'm going there. They, they make it really convenient with digital tools that you're all expert with. They make it super convenient. If you don't offer that, you know, that, that, that relationship isn't as sticky as it was for our parents, right? Back in the day, it's a very sticky relationship. You had the same doc for 30, 40 years. They knew your family. It was like, you know, this very social thing. Not anymore. People just want convenience. I don't care. I, pers- I don't care who I see. I have a great PCP, but man, I'm going to see whoever can see me the fastest and has 
quality and uses digital tools. I mean, that's the other thing, right? So consumers are becoming more and more savvy, especially the younger generations. Would you get on a plane? Like I was forced to one time in remote India to get on a plane that I probably wouldn't otherwise have gotten on, but I didn't have a choice. But, you know, if you're going to a, to see a clinician and they don't have, you know, modern digital tools, wouldn't that make you think twice about what about the practice itself? Are they keeping up to date? Are they using the latest surgical technique? Are they, do they have the latest surgical tools? So I would be questioning everything. So I think that's why I'm sort of pessimistic for those that don't, you know, embrace digital. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense and it brings up a lot of questions about, yeah, exactly. What else is going on if they don't keep up with the times on digital? You've actually said in the past, you know, if, if you wait, it's too late. And I love yeah. that quote because it, it really speaks to your propensity for action. I'm curious in terms of, let's say, the digital leaders listening to this podcast, do you have one or two strategies for them on how they can really get the ball rolling, especially in today's economic conditions, if maybe innovation is not top of mind for them already? Yeah, a couple really easy things I've done. Everything I tell you is not theory. I, I've done them. Is uh, look at outside of healthcare and identify two or three consumer good companies or, or something retail company that that you think has it going on when it comes to consumerism and convenience and all that kind of stuff, and then go visit them. So yeah. I've done this. I've done this with uh, Starbucks, Kimberly Clark. There's a couple I'd like to mention, but they actually went bankrupt, so I'm yeah. kind of embarrassed now. But back <laughs> in the day, they were really good. And I learned from them, 7-Eleven actually, when right. it comes to personalization of couponing. So what we would do is we'd meet with them. I'd bring my my leadership team to their location and we'd spend a whole day together. The first half was us showing our strategy and having them poke holes in it and right. then reverse it. And at the end of the day, we had these tight connections that we could leverage on, you know, call, contact each other later on, but also got this great input and like seeing what they were doing. And for 7-Eleven, I mean, I was kind of making fun of that, but that was a real one where they were leading in mobile. Yeah. And so we learned a lot about our, for our mobile strategy from them. And I could give you all sorts of examples. So that's one super easy thing. And then the other thing is do the same with a healthcare system, right? Almost all healthcare systems are friendly. If you call your fellow CDO or CIO, they're going to pick up the phone. And I did the same thing. And I met with uh, a bunch of different health systems. And then we did the exact same thing I just described. Always learn something new, offer, you know, we were able to give back as well. And so there you get some ideas. You know, and that should form your plan. So you have to have a comprehensive digital plan that not just one-time effort that sits on the shelf, but is constantly iterated upon. You know, that's another thing. And that sounds so basic, right? Just saying it, but I'm telling you only 20% of healthcare organizations have a plan and a plan <laughs> is not in the head. Uh, it has to be a written plan and that that plan is not done by you sitting in IT, but is you collaborating with the entire organization. And so that's the other thing. So add a Alan, you're going to have to like stop me if I keep going uh, because this, I could give you, give so many tips because the other one is don't spend time in IT. So spend time outside of IT because then you're going to find the need. Like I thought I was pretty decent, right? Because I have a lot of experience now. I'm at the Cleveland Clinic and I'm like, I know I've got to keep staying with the clinicians. We never had IT leadership meetings in IT, always mm -hmm. at a clinician, different institute, different hospital. But that wasn't enough for me, and I volunteered. But that wasn't enough. I, I wanted to work, so I got a. I took a job every Wednesday. I worked in the OR, so wow. from five a.m. to one p.m. every Wednesday, I put on scrubs, and I worked as an anesthesia tech. Remember, in the beginning <laughs> of my career, I was an anesthesia tech, so I was part of the medical staff. And I didn't advertise it. Very few people knew it. I had a a different badge, and uh, obviously, my boss there knew it, and my bo real boss, the CEO, knew it. But it wasn't something I did so that I could get like accolades or something like that. I did it because I really wanted to know. But here's the point. I was shocked when I worked in the OR with the amount of systems that were not interconnected, right? We had a separate bioengineering department. I'm not saying this is the reason. Bioengineering was separate from IT and uh, the two didn't talk a whole lot, you know. And so as a partially as a result, I think it's this way even when IT and biomed is together. So I'm not saying anything negative, but... The, the amount of systems that still didn't talk to like the EHR directly. And some of them, you know, I, people were doing hand, like taking a fig number off one yeah. thing. Uh, that shocked me. And it's like, I wouldn't have known had I not had that experience. And I'm like, so afterwards I'm like, Hey, you know, I'd call meetings with Bioman. I'm like, Hey, uh, you guys, they use this particular instrument a lot. Let's, let's make it connected. So it's getting out there. And 
And then not just you, it's good if you do it. You have to do it. I, I think you're not credible if you don't do something like I just described. So I would do these programs for every FTE. So everyone that worked in IT had to spend a day, a year with a clinician. Now, some people listening might say, oh yeah, one day a year, big deal. Oh no, that one day could be life-changing. Plus, if you do it every year, which is what I did. So when I was at Texas Health, we did it for eight years. I did a Cleveland Clinic. I wasn't there eight years, but we did it every year that I was there. You start adding days. And if you have a team of, let's just say a hundred people and you do it for five years, they've had 500 days. And I'm telling you, it changes it changes things. I'll just give you one example again for the sake of time because I could riff on this forever. But one example, I'll never forget. What I would do is I'd make them write about their, it's just like one or two paragraphs. They had to write, like we had on SharePoint, you had to write about your experience, things you learned, and maybe things we can do for the customer. And this this person said, hey, and I've been a database administrator here for 25 years. Uh, and I thought this was the dumbest thing ever because, you know, obviously we work here and uh, what a waste of time. I've got a big backlog. And, but I never knew we had patients Bam. and think about that. And he knew here in his head, he did not know here in his heart. So our job as a leader is to connect the head to the heart. Then we have changed. That guy became the best database administrator ever. Wow. Uh, so it, it's profound. Even one day, again, I got so many stories percolating in my head. It would take the rest of our podcast. So I'll stop, but I'm telling you, these are simple things. None of the things I just told you, except for the planning, having a plan that incorporates was very important. That takes a little bit of effort, but the other things I just share with you, they're like four or five things to the, your audience. Anyone could do them. You know, it, it reminds me of like just the saying, you know, for let's say for businesses, you know, spend time with your customers. Yeah. And give up so much empathy and, and understanding for the real problems to be solved. And it sounds like what you're saying is, Hey, like, yes, we're in the same organization, but in many ways, I guess the clinicians and the patients are the customers for IT. Is that fair to say? And if you yeah. don't spend time with them, like how do you know why you're doing or what you should be doing? Yeah, I don't. That's absolutely right. That's a great summary, Joshua. So, Ed, I know you were talking about one of the the heavier lift operations is putting together this strategy and vision actually on paper, getting it out of your head. In a past interview, I think this was when you were CIO at Texas Health. So it was a little while back, but you you said we don't have any IT initiatives. We have business initiatives that require IT. And I think that sentiment is is quite profound in its focus on population health and well-being overall. Yeah. I was curious, could you give for some of the leaders out there, how would you formulate some of these visions that are tied to a business goal yeah. as opposed to just IT? We try to align everything to a business initiative. And that included even things that people would consider infrastructure like Let's just say you have to, you do an infrastructure refresh, you know, you're on a three-year cycle. So one third of your, of your network is being refreshed each year. And we would still tie that to the business so that hundred percent of everything we did was attached to a business initiative. Now, some of that for infrastructure, things like that might be spread across several different initiatives. So EHRs are passe, but let's just say I still know some places that are implementing ERP systems. So let's just say you had a major, some major initiatives were over the next two to three years were like. ERP, uh, CRM, digital, quote unquote, you could then attribute a lot of the infrastructure right over major projects like that. So that if you ever sliced and diced our budget, there would be, it'd be $0. It was all allocated towards our customers, our projects. And so that's why I would say, no, we don't have a data center, you know, upgrade or server upgrade or Citrix or, you know, whatever the more infrastructure type of things would be, but it was always tied to a business thing. And let me tell you the benefit. So one is I didn't have to work hard to get the budget for these things because they yeah. were tied to the business. <laughs> so I'll never forget this happened two or three times in my career. So it happened in New York city more recently, not quite at the Cleveland clinic. I was getting there, but definitely at Texas health where we went around right as a senior leadership team. What happens is I'm going to make up the number for the sake of an easy example, but you have a hundred dollars to spend on capital and there's $500 worth of requests. And each executive is sitting there telling each other about why their $10 thing is more important than the other $10 thing so that their $10 thing gets into the hundred. There were multiple occasions where I never had to say a word and everything got funded. <laughs> and I, I'll never forget those days. I, I think I was on the verge of tear the first time it happened because I was like, wow, these are my peers and they're the ones that are fighting because they know that 
that network is needed. If we're going to do, if we're going to lay out a bunch of, uh, like in this case, and I'm thinking about specifically was a bunch of robotics uh, for surgery. She knew the chief medical officer was the one fighting for it. She knew that if we're going to have this army of Da Vinci robots, that she, we needed a more robust network. So when we attached that network funding with Da Vinci, she was the one fighting for it and no one was going to tell her. He would talk about quality care and all that kind of stuff. So she had all the right speaking points. I didn't have to say anything. I got a whole budget approved multiple times by attaching everything to the business. But back to your point earlier, Alan, you have to know the business in order to be able to do something like that. So that is a, a real important way. Another thing that happened is uh, we were we had a Jayco interview, right? You know, Jayco comes in and they looked at the whole health system at once. And uh, <clears throat> the, the main person, you know, doing the interviewing, there's like four or five of them. They're listening to all of us talk, all the C-suite about, you know, our areas and what we do. She got me confused. She thought I was the CNO. She thought the CNO was the CIO. And again, I, I almost get emotional thinking about it in my memory because when the CNO spoke, she was talking about all the technology that they had implemented to enable nursing productivity to better quality of work for the nurses and then and for patient care. And when I spoke, I was speaking about sort of clinical things, you know, that we were doing. And and they remarked when they figured out who was who that they wish that all of the places that they surveyed were like that. So you become, if you can I always tell people, if you, if someone is a guest, and they come in to your C-suite and they can't figure out who the CIO is, you are a darn good CIO. Yeah. So I you got to build the language, right? Language of the customer. You might not be a doc like Joshua, but you can like, I already share with you how you can hang out with them. You can learn from them there. No one ever turned me down when I said, can I spend a day with you? Can I, can you show me this or that? No one's ever turned me down for anything like that. So it's not an excuse to say, well, I'm not a clinician or anything. You can still get time with nurses. And then you'll find the more time you spend outside of IT, the more, oh, it's the wrong word, but I'm going to use it anyways. The more, no, in, here's the right word, influence. The more influence you have, right? You're, you're, you're limited in your influence. If you're just a CIO and you sit in IT, yeah, that's pretty limited, especially these days. But if you're spending all your time with your customers and they can't differentiate who you are, You've got a lot of influence. That's, can I ask you, when you were working like closely with the CFO at University Hospitals, did that sort of like change the way you thought about being a, a digital and tech leader? Like, for example, like maybe you better understood the business levers in the organization or... Yeah. I'm just curious if that changed how you thought about technology in some way. Yeah, it was a... I, I'm so glad that my first... And that was eight years. My first stint as CIO was under serving a CFO because, you know, today we kind of poo-poo that. And even 10, 15 years ago, oh, you report to CFO, that's so old school. And I'm not suggesting anyone should report to CFO in this day and age if you've got the right chops. But the reason it was important, one is I learned the business, right? Joshua, to your point, I, I learned business fundamentals. The other thing it gave me a clear advantage on is, uh, is when it came to funding. So, you know, when you have the CFO who's also sitting there in that C-suite meeting when it comes time to budget and he's pushing, in our, my case was he, he's pushing, you know, your agenda, then that's cool because it makes life a lot easier. But it also forces you, I think this was the heart of your question, it forces you to take a really uh, analytical view on is this the right technology? Is this the right digital solution? Cause you can get swept up in, in different types of emotions and, and shiny bright objects and all that kind of stuff. But you learn this business acumen that's really critical, I think. So they was so formative for me and I'm still best buddies with that CFO. He's, he's now at uh, Geisinger. Kevin and I are, are fast friends for so many years and uh, he was very influential in my life. I love that. Ed, you shared in the past and I wonder if this is maybe from Kevin, but some wisdom that was passed down to you from a previous mentor. So the statement was the right people in the right place is your greatest asset, not just people. And so now that you're on the other table and you're supporting uh, health systems from the outside in, I'm curious, how do you view having the right people, especially those who have really been in the trenches as an asset for Divergent? Yeah. So it is all about people. And yeah, that came from the CIO of HCA. So yeah. I had, I knocked on Zenti's door begged to be CIO. He said, yes. I was like freaked out. Oh my gosh, what do I do next? She was the first call I made 
So I was like, no, because I had worked at HCA. And I was like, no, I, I have good news and bad news, you know, and the good news is I, or bad news, I forget how it worked. But anyways, I'm the CIO and I need help. <laughs> that was the bad news. Like, I don't know what to do. So good news, CIO, bad news, I have no clue. So she said, Ed, just remember this. People are not your most important asset. And I was like, what? That's heresy, <laughs> right? Everyone says people, people. No, no, it's the right people in the right place. And I was like, oh yeah. She goes, fire fast. Okay. Uh, so... I haven't been real good at that last, that, that part of it, but I've been really good about the first part and that's try to find the right people for the right place. And yeah, it's even more true now at Divergent, right? Because we're, we, we, we're good services, advisory and services firm, and we have a lot of uh, high client satisfaction and it only comes down to the people though, right? Because there's a lot of firms that can do what we do. You know, we're really good at a lot of different things, but there's a lot of other firms that do similar things. And at the end of the day, it, it comes down to, to the people. So yeah, the brand's important, how you market and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, it really does come down to people because what if they choose you because your brand or something, and then you got a mediocre person, they're like, okay. we're never gonna use Divergent again. So our focus, so our vision statement, which I love how the team came up with it. It's like, we wanna be the you know advisory firm of choice for leading organizations. And this is the part they added, which I just like, loved it. They were like, and talent either. So we're all about just getting the perfect, the, there's no such thing as perfect, getting the right talent and putting them in the right places. So super important, even more so today than previously, but yeah, still live by that for sure. Thank you, Noel. Ed, Ed, do you, do you believe that like people can, can be a moat for, for an organization or a business? And I asked because like, you know, when I think about some of the health systems that, that we work with. And we ask them, hey, like, like you know, what's your favorite part about Seamless? Like, why do you keep working with us? And very often the answer is, we just like really love the team and the culture. And on the one hand, that makes me very proud. On the other hand, I'm like, I don't know how to really market that. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I'm just curious, do you think like culture can be a moat for an organization as you grow a business like Divergent? Yeah, I think, you know, culture as, as we know is uh, super, super key because it really sets the tone for the rest of the organization. We spend a lot of time on it as well, like you all do. And we find that that helps us to retain the right people. So yeah. we talked a lot already about the right people in the right places, but how do you retain them, right? Because if they're like really good talent, they're gonna you know, be recruited by other people, competitors and such, and be given other opportunities. And we're hoping that our culture is one of the things that helps make people stay. And then again, if they're happy, that that transfers onto the customer. Like you you were saying, Joshua, like they love working with Seamless MD because you've got great people and you got this great culture. And so it, it's really important for us that we work on it. And one thing that we always do is uh, we have values. So we call them elite because you know E L I T E. Each one stands for a particular value. And at the beginning of every meeting, we start off with someone, an example, who in the previous day or two has demonstrated one of those values. So it's something just to keep our culture at, at the forefront in our mind and, you know, relevant. And so if you don't have a culture, right, the opposite happens where people get, they lose the passion they lose the mission focus. They, what's it called? Quiet quitting and stuff like that. And that doesn't help anyone. So culture is like really key for us. And it's interesting. And a little while ago in the conversation, you were saying, you know, the brand matters, sure, and there's brand marketing and all that, but the people are really what matters. And the people do reflect back the brand and it, yeah. and it leaves that lasting impression of the brand on the on the customer. So I think that's really fitting. I was also curious, there was another podcast you were on recently where you were talking about, you know, at Divergent, what the team's really focused on is you wanting health systems to go from pockets of brilliance to enterprises of excellence. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so where the term pockets of brilliance really came to me was, and moving to enterprise excellence is when I became CIO of Cleveland Clinic. So we were really well known, still are today, for patient experience. And so, you know, one of the ways that patients have an experience and an encounter is through your portal, right? So when I went online to download, like I was just starting and I was downloading like our patient portal, there were like almost 30 portals with the name Cleveland Clinic. And they were, some were very specific to a particular disease state. And I thought to myself, man, that's a cool app. But if I'm a patient, 
I now have to know, remember how to get into Cleveland Clinic portal. Now I got to learn this one and then possibly a couple others, depending on my situation. That's not a good experience, but they look cool. We had one that counted sheep. Literally, it was like for sleeping, you know, and you could like watch the sheep jump. And, um, and so when I was tasked to, to formulate the digital strategy for the clinic, you know, that was one thing we really focused on was, hey, we've got some great bright, shiny objects. We do some things really cool, but overall, it's not cool. Okay. And so we need to move from this pockets of brilliance to an enterprise of excellence. So not, let's not just have like one department or one service line have this great engagement capability. Everyone should have the same engagement capability. Because you can imagine how, how uh, you know, discombobulated that situation is. And it's not just, you know, that just happened to be my experience, but it's the same at other health yeah. systems. I walked into one one time where there was uh, three or four banners proudly, like right next to each other, like, hey, there's a parking app so you don't lose where you parked. And then there, there was the billing app and then there was their clinical app, you know, and it's like, oh my gosh, that is not a good experience yeah. for anyone. You know, you should combine all of those. So I use that a lot in governance as well, right? When it comes to making smart decisions for the organization, when it comes to digital is like, let's look at an enterprise point of view from the patient, not from, you know, a really strong leader in a particular department who's got a lot of influence and someone else who wants to do their own thing. They don't need IT because then it gets really messy. And, and I think most organizations, like I said, they don't have a plan. So when you don't have a plan, that's what happens. And so you really have to try hard to move away from that the natural inertia and like bring it back in. It's not a, it's a hard thing to do. You're not going to win a popularity contest, you know, when you, when you do something like that. But if you always bring it back to the mission and vision of the organization, you know, to teach, to heal, to discover, whatever it might be, then people are more accepting of you doing that. Cause some people will feel like a loss cause they had something like really, really great, but it wasn't connected with anything. I think you always bring the mission and vision back into it and the relationship and, and you can get there. So I, I'm proud of the work that we did, you know, at the clinic and other areas when it came to kind of like getting rid of that bright, shiny object syndrome and really focusing on an enterprise of excellence. I want to follow up to that. So I, I'm guessing like, you know, as a CIO, you often had clinicians come to you with like a bright, shiny new object and enthusiasm and excitement. And probably more often than you'd like, you had to shut it down or push back or whatnot. And, you know, that could discourage some clinicians from wanting to bring up new ideas in the future. Like, how do you sort of manage that that relationship and, and still keep them engaged with you and, and supportive and, and a partner if you have to say no a lot? Yeah, no, that that is a big challenge, right? You don't want to stifle innovation. You want to encourage innovation. So you have to work to create opportunities for innovation. So I was fortunate. So if listeners don't have the situation, you can create the situation. So I was fortunate to work with someone that was starting what's called the Brain X community. In fact, Joshua, you may be part of that community now and it started upstairs from where my office was. And it was really a bunch of clinicians, super wicked smart clinicians. And in the evenings they would code. And so they, they formed their own group for innovation. And I went and they were like astonished at first and so thankful that someone from administration was listening and went and supported them. And I would just encourage their innovation and not stifle it. And if there's, there was something that had legs, then I'd introduce them. Let's just say it was AI data. And so I would bring them together with, you know, the data gurus, the chief data officer, and, you know, see if there was a there there and create avenues. Another thing I did, and again, it helps to be proactive. If you're in a defensive mode, Joshua, as you know, it's not going to lead to good outcomes. It's not going to be good for you. You're going to lose influence. You're going to lose supporters and all that kind of stuff. So another thing we did was create our own TED event. So it's called TEDx. So TEDx, it's a licensed event. It's a one-day TED event. And so what we did, is, in addition to having some of our own speakers that we chose from the outside and a couple from the inside, we created an opportunity for innovation. So basically a contest. And then we had a way online, all digital to like rate things. So you would go through a submission process and we would take the top 10 and then we would meet with the top 10 little committee and we'd whittle it down to like, I think it was the top six, then the top six would go to the C-suite. So the C-suite gave up one of the meetings to listen to pitches. And, and then the top three went to the TEDx. And so the last part of the TEDx was the three pitches. Okay. And the audience voted on who would win and who got funded. So I'll never forget, one of them was a mobile app 
the person was like from, she was from food service. She had a family member in crisis and came up with this idea. We funded her app, uh, created her app, and eventually she got hired into IT as our digital person. I haven't caught up with her lately, but some, a friend of mine told me that she's now heading digital for some health system. So oh, wow. I really need to go find her. But you do things like that to create innovation and give people an outlet for innovation. And if you give people an outlet, they'll understand that you can't do everything, but you, you don't want to discourage it. You, you want to listen. And then, you know, you have to be smart politically. Like if it's the chair of plastic surgery, you know, and he, he's got some deal he wants to do with Microsoft. Well, of course, you know, you're going to go to his office and you're going to listen and see, you know, if there's a, a there, there, that yeah, oh, that sounds really good. Yeah, we could use HoloLens for something like that. And and we did, you know, and so you definitely have to listen and engage. And then the other thing, maybe the last thing, again, I try to be super practical, and these are all things I did. Again, there's none of this is theory, is find those clinicians, those physicians, nurses as well, that are super interested in innovation or they come up with ideas and make them part of IT. In some cases, maybe you can pay them a little stipend. So we are fortunate, a very small stipend we would pay. And I had like 20, I call them like ambassadors of IT that represented the most of the specialties of our organization. And so they were, they were my listening posts and they would, they, they were also the, the people who might vet ideas before they got up to IT or something. So there's different ways. And sometimes you can't pay them. So I've been in organizations where we didn't pay them and I didn't have 20, but I had a handful. And uh, they loved it because they were looking to maybe become CMIOs and things like that, CNIOs. And so they loved the opportunity to engage. And then when you have a clinician with you and you're especially speaking with other clinicians, it gives you a lot more clout and ability to kind of, you know, if you can't say yes, you know, to say, hey, maybe not now, but in the future. Mm -hmm. I think the key takeaway for me on this is you were very proactive in engaging. Yeah. You would go up to that, that, that coding group of clinicians and you weren't just waiting for them to come to you with stuff. You said, no, no, I'm going to go to where my customers are. I'm going to listen. I may yeah. not agree with everything that, that you're saying, but I'm going to listen. Yeah. And, and I, that's so critical. Yeah. And I created listening posts with, with them and nursing included, but I remember physicians, you know, I would we attached to our, so the last place where I served attached to our, our main hospital was, a was a, a large hotel and the hotel had a lobby and a wine in a place where people went after hours if they wanted to get, it was like a bar, like a glass <laughs> of wine. So I would do wine nights for clinicians. So like after they're done doing rounds or something, they could come over, have a glass of wine and chat. I would do our early morning walks. So we had extensive walkways, miles and miles of walkways, you know, cause of the cold. And then I would do, Hey, walk with Ed, I think is what we called <laughs> it. So we did all sorts of things to be proactive to your point. Cause then no one can ever point at you and say, you don't listen. You always say no, all the stuff that most people say about CIOs. You, Cause I could say the opposite of this. Any, no one ever did that to me. Cause they knew I could say, Hey, we had wine nights every, every Wednesday. We had walk with Ed every Thursday morning. We had brain X. We have this Ted X. We have the, I, I'm, no one could ever say you, you didn't listen. I love that. So Ed, last question that I have, you mentioned it already earlier, but you're wrapping up this book right now, co-authored by Chris Ross, CIO at Mayo Clinic. It's aimed at consumers, so it's really to yeah. empower the consumer and the patient to have a positive experience regardless of their background and where they receive care. What inspired that collaboration? Was it truly just personal experience that you and Chris both having with the systems or? Yeah, it, yeah, it goes back to the story earlier where we're like, hey, we had this experience. It was again, it wasn't bad, but we are in the know and we're executives. Imagine what it's like for the rest of the population, especially marginalized communities, you know. <laughs> and so we felt like we had an ethical responsibility to to write something and to provide a helpful manual. It's almost like a manual where you could you could buy this and and follow these steps that'll help you have so here's here's the heart of it is that you should have a great patient experience no matter where you come from yeah. or where you're going to get care so whether you're at a clinic an academic medical center a community hospital out in a remote care you should have a great experience mm -hmm. and so this handbook will increase the odds substantially that they will it's just empowering because there's things in there that consumers don't know that if they knew they would have a better experience because they'd be more in charge. So yeah. that's really what the motivation was. And all the money that's being raised, including from the publisher, is 
is going to cure cancer. We're going to have a Mayo Clinic fund, Chris and Ed, I don't know what we're going to call it, but all the profits go to cure cancer. So we, there's nothing, no, nothing personal that we get from it financially. We're really doing it because that's where our heart is. Wow. No, that's great. Awesome. And any idea or update on when it's coming out? Yes. Frustrating uh, question for me. Uh, <laughs> we're still targeting end of year. So okay. it'd be like December. A few things have to happen pretty quick. We're pretty far down the road. It's just, it's that good to and great continuum. Like, the effort that it takes to get to the next level versus is it good enough already? So we want it to be high, high quality. There's a belief that this is going to be a New York Times bestseller. So we have a great editor. She keeps us on our toes. She's not afraid of us, which I love. So we're putting a lot of effort into it, but hopefully by end of year. Oh, that's awesome. We can't wait. Okay, Ed, so just being mindful of your time, let's flip over to the Fast Five lightning round. Five questions to get to know you better. The first question we have, what is your favorite book or book you've gifted the most? Yeah, you know, I, I I'm not, not going to get religious on y'all, but probably, you know, I smuggled Bibles into China a few years ago. <laughs> so that's the one I gave away the most. Uh, so that's a pretty good book. Just, in, you know, whether from a historical perspective or mm -hmm. religious, that'd be the book. Yeah, it's awesome. I have heard of it. I have yeah. Heard of it. <laughs> yeah, I've heard of that one. Yeah. And to who is a person either dead or alive you'd love to meet? Yeah, so my mom, on my my, my uh, grandmother on my dad's side, right? My dad's uh, escaped from a concentration camp. She enabled his escape, sacrificed her wow. own life. So I'd like to be here. That's wild. Very cool. Question three, would you rather have super strength, super speed, or the ability to read people's minds? So I think the last one would be too much of a burden to carry. So I thought about speed. You do a lot of triathlons and yeah. stuff. So if I could be a faster runner, I'd like that. Yeah. That's great. A question four, what is something in healthcare you believe that others might find insane? I think our payment structure is crazy. <laughs> Makes no sense. Yep. A question five, if you could travel back in time to any event or moment, what would it be and why? Yeah, I I think I, I had this really interesting moment with my mom, who's now dead, when when I was five. Uh, and I, I'd like to go back to that moment and see if it was as real as I recall it to be. Oh, it was wow. a very special moment. And so it'd be fun to go back and see sure. it. Oh, that's amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you, Ed, for spending some time with us and sharing your wisdom with our audience. Really, really appreciate it. You can find Ed on Twitter at Mark's Tango. I believe a call back to your days doing Tango. And that's a wrap for this episode of The Digital Patient hosted by SeamlessMD. You can follow us on Twitter at SeamlessMD. And if you like the podcast and you want to learn more, visit www.senos.md. Ed, again, thank you so much. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Joshua, for having me. And thank you, Seamless MD. Thanks, Ed.